Stir up, O Lord, the will of your faithful people, that we may bear an abundance of fruit and good works, and may be abundantly rewarded when Jesus Christ comes to restore all things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Psalm 104, as you can see on the screen. This psalm is gorgeous. That's all I can say. But this is what occurred to me in realizing, in thinking about what we're doing, what we're reading, what we're studying, and this moment, this Sunday, being Creation Sunday. Which, by the way, is not like some church tradition. I, I made that up. I thought it'd be really cool. And I'll tell you why in the message. To look back at this point in the year on creation and give thanks to God. I mean, yes, Thanksgiving's coming around the corner, but this is also the last Sunday before Advent, which is the start of the Christian year. So it's a great time to look back. You remember that God, after he created for six days, looked back on his creation and called it very good. And so when we do the same, we enter into that seventh day of Sabbath rest and get to shout hallelujah with him. Um, but in, in thinking about this, it dawned on me that creation is a gift because evolution cannot induce thanksgiving. Think about that. Believing in evolution cannot possibly create thanksgiving as a reaction because evolution is not a gift that's received. It's just something that has happened. It's just there. And if you believe that, then basically you are admitting that I am here simply because I out-survived every other creature. That's what brings us to this point. We out-survived everything, which then actually, rather than leading us to thanksgiving, leads us to the opposite state of pride. The gift of creation is that it's received, and that it gives us a place in the universe to say thank you to someone, something, whom we call God, the creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit. That's the gift that we have. So, we're looking back, and we're returning. We're looking back at God's creation, at his works, and we're acknowledging it to return it to him in thanksgiving. Okay, so Psalm 104. It is a beautiful psalm of praise and thanksgiving to God as creator and as sustainer. These two go together in scripture and we often forget. We talk about, like the Apostles' Creed, for example, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Great, that's a great proclamation, but we must recognize that when we call him the creator, attached to that in scripture is the assumption that he's therefore also its sustainer. He did not create, like they talk about, right? Deism, they talk about winding up the clock and then letting it just kind of run itself. He did not create and then say, all right, I'll come back when you guys, you know, when it's time to kind of close everything up, close up shop. He sustained, he created it, and he's in the midst of it, working it. His fingers get dirty. Our God is a gardener, and he keeps on working alongside his creation. Why? Because he delights in his creation. To him, creation is not just um, something that is pragmatic, utilitarian, just, well, they just need to have food, so I'll give them food. He enjoyed creating a system where we get to eat and enjoy delicious food. Not just, well, the sun's got to go down, the moon's got to come up, but to do so in ways that are gorgeous and breathtaking and take our attention. He delights in his creation. 
This is a joy to him. He is our creator and sustainer. And we also recited that Colossians chapter 1. Through him all things were made and all things hold together. Creator, sustainer. So it's a beautiful psalm. It's a beautiful song of thanksgiving and praise to God as both creator and sustainer. Now, I don't know who this guy is, but I came across a quote and it was too good not to share. His name's Johann Gottfried Herder. Got it? It's a German philosopher from the 18th century. I don't even know if he's a Christian, but he said this. It is worth studying the Hebrew language for 10 years just so that you can read Psalm 104 in its original language. Now, I haven't studied Hebrew for 10 years. I studied Hebrew for a semester. And all I got as far as was I got, I I passed a test to recite the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and on, in Hebrew. That's all I learned. (laughs) Um, So I can't pretend to, like, I read this in Hebrew and it's gorgeous. Um, It's gorgeous in English. But can you imagine it in the Hebrew, where the original poem was composed? And I'm sure you can't read Hebrew either. Probably the one person in this room who can actually read Hebrew better than me is not here tonight, so I'm safe. But, um... I would like to capture, though, a part of the beauty of this psalm for you guys by sharing um, a song that I heard done from it. Uh, it's chant. It's, it's Psalm 104 chanted, and it really gives you another way of hearing the psalm in a beautiful way, a way that we're not used to, because we, we, you know, I, I don't know how to chant. I just read the psalms. Um, but it really gives it a, a, a really beautiful flavor. So chant. It makes it enchanted. Here, think about that. Yeah, it's an enchanting version. I, so here I go. This is just the simplest way to do it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art become exceeding glorious. In honor and majesty hast thou clothed thyself. Wrapping thyself with light as it were with a garment And spreading out the heavens like a curtain Who covereth the beams of his chambers by the waters Who appointeth the clouds for his going forth Who walketh upon the wings of the wind who maketh his angel spirits and his ministers a flaming fire? Whoso layeth the earth on its foundation that it shall not be moved? The deep like a garment is its clothing. The waters stand above the hills. At thy rebuke they shall flee. At the voice of thy thunder they shall be afraid. The hills shall go up and the plains sink down, even unto the place which thou hast appointed for them. Thou hast set a boundary which they shall not pass, neither return again to cover the earth. Who sendeth the springs into the valleys, the waters will run between the hills. All beasts of the field shall drink thereof, and wild asses quench their thirst. Beside them shall the fowls of the air have their habitation. 
they shall sing among the rocks. He watereth the hills from his heights. The earth shall be well fed by the fruit of thy works. Who bringeth forth grass for the cattle and greener for the service of man. To bring forth bread from the earth and wine maketh glad the heart of man. To anoint the face with oil and bread strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the plain shall be full of sap. The cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted. In them the birds shall make their nest the home of the stork is chief among them. The hills are for the deer, the rock is a refuge for the cornies. He made the moon to mark the season, the sun knoweth his going down. Thou didst ordain darkness, and there was the night, wherein all the beasts of the forest to move. Young lions roaring after their prey, and seek their meat from God. The sun arose, and they gathered together, and shall lie down in their dens. Man shall go forth to his work and to his labor until the evening. How great are thy works, O Lord! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is filled with thy handiwork. So is this great and wide sea. Wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts? There go the ships and that Leviathan, whom thou hast made to take his pastime therein. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them food into season. When thou givest it, them they shall gather it. When thou openest thy hand, all things shall be filled with good. But when thou hidest thy face, they shall be troubled. Thou shalt take away their spirit, and they shall pass away and return again to their dust. Thou shalt send forth thy spirit, and they shall be made. And thou shalt renew the face of the earth. O let the glory of the Lord endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. Who looketh upon the earth and it trembleth. Who toucheth the hills and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will praise my God while I have my being. Let my conversation be pleasing unto him, for I shall be glad in the Lord. Oh, that sinners should cease from the earth, and the ungodly that they should be no more. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Yeah, so that's better than I can read it or sing it, huh? <sighs> that's um, that's uh, at least in English how you sing the psalms, uh, like word for word. Like we get a lot of contemporary music that sings the psalms, but typically it's hard to fit 
all those words in contemporary music, so they tend to take sections of psalms. That was the whole psalm, word for word. I think it was in... I thought it was the New King James Version, but then I realized that one word wasn't translated the way the, New, the King James, Old King James, I mean. So I don't know, it might have been the Revised Standard, but whatever. It was one of those older translations, and it was, I liked it. I listened to it, like, on repeat as I studied. It was kind of cool. Um, I know, how do you think and have words playing? I don't know, but I just did. So, anyways, uh, Psalm 104 is, as you heard, just this brilliant praise to God. It starts off in verses 1 through 4 with this address to God. It doesn't just launch into this, like, everything around me is so beautiful. It acknowledges where it all comes from. And it starts by being specific about our God. O Lord my God, you... Oh, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. So this is a great God. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And then that's elaborated by saying in verse 2, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Stretching out the heavens like a tent. So it's as if the sun itself is a cloak. If you saw him cloaked and robed, it would shimmer brighter than the sun. That's a brilliant array for a king. Verse 3, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. Now, ancient people believed, and there might have been actually a case before the flood, where there was this chamber of waters above the earth. Um, or it might just simply be referring to the water cycle and the cloud system. But nonetheless, the point is, he has built his chamber, he, he's built his palace above um, our lowly existence on earth. Like he's, he's high and mighty and grand. Like a king always lives elevated from his people. Um, although our king is with us and living elevated. Um, <laughs> he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. So everything serves him. In verse 4, he makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, by the way, quotes verse 4, talking about the angels. So we know that the ministers are angels. His angels are flame and fire. This is who he is. It starts off by saying he's, you can't really comprehend the majesty and brilliance of this creator and sustainer. So then verse 5 takes us to, it praises now, it, after addressing God, it now praises him as the creator. This is verse 5 through 9, and it takes us back to the very beginning of Genesis. You may remember that in Genesis 1 verse 1 we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was without form and void. It was shapeless and empty. And darkness hovered over the surface of the deep. But, verse 3 says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, or the deep. So all we know is that the world didn't have shape and it was not filled with life, but the Spirit of God was hovering over that water. Well, verses 5 through 9 take us to that moment where we see water and how God brings creation out of it. Verse 5, He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Creation, he speaks, and the waters are pulled away, and the earth is exposed. We read that in Genesis, how the dry land came up out of the waters. This is also pictured in the Exodus story, when Israel's backed up against the Red Sea, and they have nowhere to go, and Pharaoh's coming after them. But Moses lifts his hands over the waters, and the Spirit of God, it says in mighty east wind, but in the Hebrew it's ruach, which is the same word in Genesis 1-3 that says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. 
And so the same creating spirit hovers over the Red Sea and pushes the sea back so that Israel can go through. In other words, God was birthing his people in that Exodus moment. It was a new creation. Because humanity was making a mess of the one creation. This creation was being renewed, a people being renewed within it. Anyways, so verse 8 continues the image. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass. The waters are now guarded by a boundary so that they may not again cover the earth. So that's the creator. Then verse 10 through 23 honors God, praises him as the sustainer. And this is where the song gets really beautiful because it now touches this great and mighty God is not so transcendent that he doesn't come and have a hand-on approach to his creation. So in verse 10, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. See, we in America will say, well, we know the rains come, the water cycle comes, and it waters the mountains. But in Psalm 104, in this world, it looks at God as the one who's active in the water cycle. He's the one who's bringing rain down on the mountains. Um, From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. So he sustains his creation with water. Now he sustains his creation with food in verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. There you have the scriptural, uh, these are the basic blocks of food for biblical in the Bible, for man. It's wine, oil, and bread. Those are the staples. Those are what you need to live. In the, and you often see that, bread, oil, and wine. And when um, God's people are called to a fast, the wine and the oil are taken away because those are considered luxuries. And just the necessity is left, bread. Um, now, in verse 16, we see that he is sustaining through giving creation shelter. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, and the cedars of Lebanon that he planted... And in these trees, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, and the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Some translations say the conies or the rabbits. We don't know. They're just little critters that live in the rocks. And now verse 20, he sustains... um, No, verse 19. He, uh, He also sustains by giving creation a rhythm. It's not just this endless parade of work. There's a rhythm of work and rest. Verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. So the moon tells us when a month goes by. And then the sun sets to tell us when a day is ended. You make the darkness. It is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about. Verse 20 is important because darkness was terrifying in a world without electricity. The world was actually very dark at night. It used to be dark up here, but we got a lot of light pollution nowadays, and it's changing, it seems, at least where I'm living. I don't see the stars like I used to. But anyways, dark, <laughs> uh, dark used to be dark, and 
and people were terrified of it. But here the Psalms acknowledging, but you set the darkness. You roll that out. It's coming from God. It's not all evil and not all bad. So there's this acknowledgement that God is in control. Verse 21, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. So there you have the whole cycle, the rhythm of creation. That's how God sustains. And then the last part of the psalm praises God as the ruler. So he's the creator, he's the sustainer. Because he's all these things, he's also the ruler and does with it as he wills. So verse 24 proclaims the wisdom of his rule. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Or um, it can also actually be translated, the earth is full of your riches. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great, little Nemos and great big blue whales. (laughs) And there go the ships and Leviathan. You met him in Job, remember that? About a month ago? Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Yeah, that terrifying embodiment of evil, it just plays in God's world. Like, it's just there playing. Actually, though, and I prefer this translation, some put it, and there's a footnote that says it can be translated as, um, and Leviathan, whom you formed to play with. Leviathan, this terrible beast that in Job we see no man can tame. God's just like, he's my rubber ducky in the bathtub, if you will. I was, I was really reaching low, but I think it got the point. Like, that's Leviathan to God. Just like, you've got nothing on me. So his wisdom, the wisdom of his rule, now the sovereignty of his rule in verse 27. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. But when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. That's, in other words, not to say that God terrorizes them. It's to say that's how dependent creation is upon the daily sustenance of the Creator. His sovereignty is what sustains us. And then, verse 30, When you send forth your spirit, they are created. Genesis 1-3. And the spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. And you renew the face of the ground. And now the last segment. Praising God the ruler for his glory. The glory of his rule. Verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. Too hot to handle, right? (laughs) I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, which is in the Hebrew, directly, hallelujah. But, uh, I love this, how at the end, he's talking about the glory of God's rule. And the psalmist, after all this praise and thanksgiving of what God has done, he can't help but participate in the glory of God. 
May the Lord be glory. May, may the glory of the Lord endure forever, he says in verse 31. I want part of that. So he asks in verse 33. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I want my every breath to praise him. I want to contribute to this glory of God. And then in verse 34, may my meditation be pleasing to him. I want to be pure of heart. I want to contribute to his glory in this way. And brothers and sisters, Thanksgiving is not just some debt we owe to God. Like, well, I mean, golly, we couldn't do it ourselves. We might as well thank him for getting our act together for us. Sometimes like Thanksgiving can feel that way. But what the psalmist is showing us is that when you praise and give thanks to someone or something, your heart longs to be united and just like that someone or something. He's praising the creator. He's praising the sustainer. He's praising the ruler. And now he says, oh, let me continually proclaim your goodness and let my heart become pure like yours. This is why, in part, that we give him thanksgiving and praise. Now, here's the shocking thing I discovered in this psalm. I knew other things you wouldn't think I would know about the psalm before I knew this. This seems so foundational, so basic, that I was blown away. So a lot of you are probably smarter than me and already knew this. Um, But believe it or not, that praise the Lord, in verse 35, the Hebrew word hallelujah, is the first time hallelujah appears in the Bible. Like, we think this is the word of the Psalms, and it's not until Psalm 104 that hallelujah appears. I didn't believe it, so I looked it up. Yes, there are commands to praise God, but not the specific Hebrew word hallelujah. Or as we did in our Psalms, the Greek translation, alleluia. Same word. This is the first. I was astounded. Halfway into the Bible, one of the like most Christian words on the planet, amen and hallelujah, are like the two. These are like untranslated. Every culture knows those words. You don't translate these words. They are what they are. You say amen in every language and hallelujah in every language. Like these very Christian words, like it isn't until the middle of the Bible, Psalms, that we see hallelujah. And it isn't until toward the latter half of the Psalms, way latter half, that we see Hallelujah. That just stunned me. I just really want to make sure we understood that. Then Psalm 105 and 106, the next two Psalms, both repeat hallelujah. So all of a sudden, hallelujah appears in a triad. Three hallelujah Psalms. And we say that God's people never anticipated a trinity. I mean, come on. There's actually other evidence, too, that the Jews were... Um, actually believed in some form of the Trinity, but that's a whole nother thing. Um, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then there's, there's, um, there's 15 total Psalms that do hallelujah. It really comes to its crescendo in 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. The last five Psalms and the entire Psalter with starting with hallelujah and ending hallelujah on each of those Psalms. So they're doubled. And that's what we sang, uh, well, recited today, those psalms, because this is it. We're at the end. This is the great hallelujah chorus. But, okay, so if this is the first time hallelujah is brought up in the Bible, um, I couldn't think of a better psalm to introduce hallelujah to the people of God. There's three good reasons hallelujah shows up in Psalm 104. The first is that in Psalm 104, we see this image of creation that doesn't just merely survive, but it thrives. That's why God is to be praised. His creation is not struggling along. It's 
thriving. In the vision of Psalm 104, 104 it's thriving. Um, look, for example, in verse 24 and 28. 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Like It's teeming with life. It's thriving. Or if you take the translation, the earth is full of your riches, then boom, like he is giving abundance to creation. It's not a world of scarcity where we got to hoard because we don't know. Everyone else might grab it. It's a world of generosity from the creator. See, in evolution, you have the survival of the fittest, but in Psalm 104, in God's world, we see creation not doing survival of the fittest, but having a revival from the riches of God. That's the beauty of him. Oh, verse 28. We didn't read that one yet. <clears throat> when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. All God does is open his hand and he fills his creation. So hallelujah, because creation doesn't merely survive, but it thrives. Hallelujah, second, because in Psalm 104, creation is not merely pragmatic, but it is God's delight. He enjoys what he made. It's not like, well, I mean, I might as well have something worship me. Make this. He wanted it made. He wants it to thrive. He wants it to become part of his joy, peace, love, unity, forever being celebrated in the Trinity. He wants to gather it up and bring it within his embrace. So you see in verse 15, uh, you see an example of this. He made... So he gave, verse 14 says, he, he made plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. In verse 15, wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Like here, the psalmist is not portraying wine, oil, and bread as, well, I mean, you gotta live. So might as well cram it down your throat. The oils for, the, the wine is for the joy of creation. The oil is to make you look good. Oil was like lotion and soap back in the day. It was very necessary for, well, we know, we live up here. We know the need for lotion and stuff. Uh, oil was it. It was also edible, so it was really good. With bread, who doesn't like bread dipped in olive oil? I don't know. You're crazy if you don't. Um, Amy, by the way, makes a great olive oil dip for bread that she did on Easter. It was fantastic. Uh, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So like, God wants us to delight in what he gives us. You also notice in verse 26, he's playing with Leviathan, or Leviathan is playing in the sea. Either way, there's this pleasure in even this pet dragon that he holds in the ocean. There's a pleasure in it. And in verse 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. And God isn't like, yeah, wait till they see my real work. He, he's rejoicing in his creation. Every day after creation, he said it was good. And then at the end of the six days, he said it is very good. God delights in this planet. He delights in the cosmos and the universe. And he delights in you. And he delights in me. And when I get old and my body falls apart, he chuckles because he thinks, well, you did that to yourself by your sin, humanity. <laughs> but he chuckles. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where he's going with that. But he, he loves us. Um, Thomas Aquinas had this really cool, very short quote. He said, when God's hand was opened by the key of love, the creatures came forth. See, the creatures weren't just like, well, something's got a team around here. Like, no, like, the key of love opened up and wow, there's a gazelle and there's a bear and there's a 
man and woman. <laughs> and there are all these things he delights in. Third reason for hallelujah is that in Psalm 104, we catch a glimpse of Adam's creation Sabbath praise. We catch a glimpse of Adam's Sabbath praise. This is really cool. This is not my origination. I read this in a book and it was like, I had to like, there's moments when you read things and you just have to set the book down and just five minutes of like breathing. (laughs) Wow, this is cool. Um, So at the end of creation, God looks back and says it's very good. And then he establishes the Sabbath to rest. The Sabbath is always a position of looking back on creation. It's always this position of saying, wow, look what God has done. Look what he's made. Look how good he is. Look how he's provided. He's wonderful. We thank him for these things. The Sabbath was made so that at the end of six days of labor, man can say, thank you for this pleasure you gave us in your creation. We give it back to you, the creator who's worthy of all. That's why we have every Sunday, we make sure there's time for us to lift up praise and thanksgiving to God. It is our chief act of worship in the Psalms themselves, they say that. And it is the way we return things back to him. We acknowledge his grace, that we are not achievers, but we're receivers of his goodness. And it's the way we give ourselves over to him and surrender. I own nothing. Naked I came, naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So here's Alexander Schmemann's wording. Psalm 104 takes us back to that first evening on which man, called by God to life, opened his eyes and saw what God in his love was giving to him. He sees all the beauty and all the glory of the temple in which he was standing and rendered thanks to God. And in this thanksgiving, man became himself. What is he saying? He's saying Psalm 104 gives us an Adam's point of view, Adam and Eve's point of view of what it was like when they first opened their eyes on the evening of the sixth day. And that in their wow and wonder and giving thanks and praise to God for it, They became themselves, meaning this is what we were created to do, was to delight in the gifts of God and to extol him for the gifts he's put in our lives. That's what we were made to do. But it was when we failed to give him Sabbath hallelujah. Notice Adam and Eve were created in the very next days of Sabbath. This is the aim of humanity. But it was when we failed to celebrate his, his goodness in a Sabbath hallelujah that we lost the Sabbath, that we lost the Garden of Eden, that we lost this perspective of God's world. And Psalm 104 tells us this. Did you notice at the very end, it's all beautiful, and then all of a sudden, you're like, why is that verse there? Verse 35, let sinners be consumed from the earth. Like, whoa, this was great. And now all of a sudden, What? Where the sinners come from? Where's this hostility coming from? And let the wicked be no more. Psalm 104 does not end ignorantly of the reality of our situation. It says, okay, 
If Psalm 104 is a true vision of God's world, then it is clear to us that our world is a nightmare. The beauty and harmony of Psalm 104 reveals the ugliness and dissonance of our existence, of what we've done to this world. Therefore, when we praise God through Psalm 104, it implicitly calls us to repent. Let sinners vanish from the earth. Let my meditation be pleasing to you. That's the point of the end of the psalm. Wow, the ugliness is so evident next to the beauty. What Adam and Eve had seen, that's not how we see the world. We must repent, we must turn, because we are part of the problem. We, like Adam and Eve, have cast ourselves out of the Sabbath of the Garden of Eden. We no longer stand in the center of creation giving thanks to God. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, says this pretty much exactly. This is Paul's theology. He said that for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, as seen here in Psalm 104, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not do what? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We stood at the center of creation like Adam even looked at it and they said, wow, and stopped giving the thanks to him and instead took it and said, let's use it for our ends and our purposes. We misused and abused what the creator and sustainer had given us. That's what Paul is saying. That's where sin came from. We failed to give him glory. We failed to give him thanks. So we lost the Sabbath and we lost Eden. Um... Notice, too, that Paul uses the word they. They fail to give him thanks. Because in the church, we have hope. Something has changed. Something's shifted. We get to reclaim our position in the center of creation to see it as Psalm 104 sees it and to give him thanks and praise. Because... Christ is the new Adam who came to earth as a creature to stand in the heart of creation and to give the proper glory, thanksgiving, and praise to the Father that we had failed to do. He didn't use and abuse and misuse creation. He glorified the Father in it and used it properly. And so, brothers and sisters, when we when we receive the body and the blood of Christ in our hands and into our hearts, we stand in Christ. And we stand restored at the heart of creation, able to lift up our Sabbath hallelujah to him. Because though we lost Eden, we lost the Sabbath, we have refound and reclaimed the eternal Sabbath rest in Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. 
because Adam and Eve lost the Sabbath rest. Israel was to enter into the Sabbath rest, but their unbelief didn't let them enter. And then Hebrews 4, 9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Christ is our rest. And in him we are restored to the center where Psalm 104 looks from Eden to the beautiful creation and gives thanks to the maker. That's what we have in Christ. That's why Paul can say they failed to give him thanks and honor. They made stupid images of the creation. But we stand in Christ in the new Adam and we are restored to our proper purpose and function. So Psalm 104, it pictures when standing at the close of the day, lifting up their praise to God as darkness descends on the day. You notice that in Psalm 104, verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. This is verse 19. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. There's this recognition that, yep, night comes. And because of this psalm, and talking about the beauty, but then acknowledging that darkness comes from God and, and that there's these seasons and rhythms, um, there is a beautiful tradition. Well, first of all, early, 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 early in Christianity, Christians prayed several times a day. Like, I, I hope you guys wake up in the morning and acknowledge God, talk to him, read scripture. I hope you start your day like that. But, and I was, I was trained to do that by my youth pastors. I got a good habit of starting the morning with God, whether it's just in a devotion or whether it's in scripture or whether it's in a more elaborate, um, longer thing. I got in the habit of starting my day with God. But new to me was the idea of finishing my day with God. We get busy. We, we go through the motions and we're exhausted. It's like, oh my goodness, I stayed up too late doing this or watching that or fiddling on the internet. Pass my bedtime, hurry off to bed, and go to sleep. But the early church has always prayed in the morning and the evening. There were hours that the Jews kept. And you actually see this in Acts chapter 3. Uh, it says that John and... It was it Peter. Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. And we know that the Jews offered burnt offerings to God in the morning and in the evening. So not to be outdone by the Jews, the early church prayed more than twice a day. But nonetheless, evening prayer became a tradition because as the darkness is setting, we need to devote our lives to God because we're reminded of the terror of the fallen world as night sets in. So um, I don't know when this started, but I, was, I found it really beautiful to learn that in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they sing Psalm 104 every day at sundown. Because you're ending the day by looking back at everything God had given you. And you're thanking Him. You're praising Him. You're welcoming the darkness, knowing that God is our sustainer through what's to come. Um... There's a, maybe you've heard the word Vespers before. It's just, it's a fancy old church tradition word for evening prayer. I, just, I think it's a cool word, Vesper. Because it specifies that we're not just talking, oh, it's evening, it's time to get dinner. We're specifying that Vesper is the evening prayer. 
that as the sun comes down, we're going to end our day with prayer and welcome the new day. Because remember in the Bible, evening is the start of a new day. We're going to welcome the new day in prayer. So um, I was intrigued by this practice of praying Psalm 104 every sundown. And this is what else I discovered. Because Psalm 104 implies that the world is not right, it doesn't quite, our experience doesn't quite line up with what we read in Psalm 104. Therefore, it calls us to repent. And so at Vespers, in the Eastern Orthodox Church at least, you follow Psalm 104 with Psalm 130, which is a beautiful psalm, which starts like this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths, because we're no longer in Eden. We're on the outside. We're in the darkness. We've made a mess of things. And today, I did not use God's creation appropriately. I did not give him thanks in all things. So out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. O let your ears be attentive to the sound of my pleadings. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you is found forgiveness, that you may be revered. I long for you, O Lord. My soul longs for his word. My soul awaits the Lord more than watchmen for daybreak. More than watchmen for daybreak, let Israel hope for the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and in him is plentiful redemption. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. We thank him, Psalm 104. We repent, Psalm 130. Then, and I knew this prayer before I knew this, um, from the very first time that I had come across um, the prayer, O Gladsome Light, it struck me as just, a beautiful redemption song of praise to Christ. And then I learned. By the way, that's the prayer we did when we lit the candle. Oh, gladsome light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, holy and blessed, now as we come to the setting of the sun and our eyes behold the evening light, we sing your praises, O God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. For you are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices, O Son of God, O giver of life, and to be glorified throughout all the world. Well, that's the next part of the prayer, singing that prayer. Because, yep, darkness is here, and out of the depths we cry out, and we need forgiveness. And then, what would happen is that song would be sung whenever you had to light candles or lamps to light up your world. Because up until recently in history, we didn't have electricity. So every time darkness set in, you thank God for the day. You've asked for repentance and forgiveness for the ways you've wronged God in the day. You next lit the lights. So every time you would have a lamp brought into your house, early Christians would recite that prayer. The light would trigger the prayer of praise. And how early did they do this? We don't know. All we know is that St. Basil the Great in the 4th century referred to the prayer of gladsome light as already an ancient tradition. So it goes really far back. And there's this beautiful story of his sister, Macrina, who actually was responsible for bringing um, Basil and Gregory of Nyssa to Christ. They were her brothers. Um, on her deathbed, as evening was setting, and they brought in the lamp to bring light to her room, she started to recite the prayer, O gladsome light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven. But her voice failed her because she was too weak. And so she couldn't finish the prayer. She finished it in silence, crossed herself, and then breathed her last and died. Not a bad way to go. 
seeing the light brought in. What if, what if we had a better relationship with the rhythms of our creator? That when darkness comes, we give him thanks for the day. We forget, we confess our sins. And then when we first turn on our electricity, rather than taking it for granted, or I'm going to watch some TV, yay, hockey. Rather than doing that, we said, it's dark. And the first time you use electricity, you say, thank you, Christ, for our redemption. Oh, glad some light, the pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven. What if we had the habit ancient Christians had to see light as a symbol of Christ's redemption in our world? And then Vespers ends with the song of Simeon. Remember him in Luke 2? Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple, and Simeon was told by the Lord he will not die until he sees the Messiah. So he takes Christ in his arms, and he says these words, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles or the nations, and for glory to your people, Israel. And so evening prayer ends with this rest that the gladsome light has come and darkness will not prevail forever. Death does not have the final say, but there will be a day in which the sun will never set. In fact, there won't even be a sun because the lamb and the glory of the lamb will be the light of the new Jerusalem. There's a day where there is no night. And so we can like Simeon say, now let your servant depart in peace for our eyes have seen the light and we can literally go to bed in peace. So, thanksgiving through Psalm 104, confession through Psalm 130, um, redemption and praise through O Gladsome Light, and resting ourselves in the peace of Christ through the song of Simeon in Luke chapter 2, verse 29. That's a good format. If we don't do evening prayer, you can start with those four. And it's a beautiful pattern of the gospel. Because, and here's why I'm, I think we should get in the habit of evening prayer. It's because most of us are in a habit of some other form of light, and it's not Christ's light. Whether it's television, the way we end our day, or even worse, the evening news. Nothing wrong with the news. But when you turn off the evening news and put your head on the pillow, that is a very different way of ending your day than, oh, gladsome light, pure brightness of the living Father in heaven, Now let your servant depart in peace for my eyes have seen the light. Vespers, evening prayer, allows us to reset ourselves, to return to God and to rest in the creator and sustainer. Evening news, soap operas, television series, surfing the internet, whatever other electricity we're using late into the night, these don't give you reset, returning and rest in peace. Only Christ can do that. All glory and honor and praise to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen.